This is it. After eight months of digging into the book of Hebrews, we come to the end. Today we're looking at chapter 13 of Hebrews, the last chapter in this book. We've been here for eight months, kind of walking through chapters 1 through 12. And there's one main point that I want us to see today. And what I, what I want us to see is that the first 12 chapters of Hebrews was this theological text pointing out to us that Jesus is better. It was this incredible theological text that we've been in for eight months. The author of Hebrews has been wanting us to know, he wrote it to the first century Christians, but he wants us to know, 2018 Christians following Jesus, to know that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the rest that the promised land gave the Old Testament people, God's people, the Israelites. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifice. He's better than the Old Testament covenant. He's better than the shed blood of goats and lambs who are sacrificed. Jesus, in fact, is the shed blood to forgive sins once and for all. And so chapters 1 through 12 have, have been just over and over again trying to get you and I to understand that Jesus is better. This deep, theologically rich text. And now as we move into Hebrews chapter 13, it's a very practical chapter. It's a very practical chapter that gives us nine ways to live like this is actually true. So if we believe chapters 1 through 12, if we believe that Jesus is better than life, if we believe that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, if we believe that Jesus is the sent Son of God, that Jesus is better than all of the Old Testament symbols and shadows and types pointing to Jesus the Messiah, if we believe that, then we ought to live differently. That's what Hebrews 13 gives us. It gives us a very practical, applicable text. In fact, there's nine things in Hebrews chapter 13 that we ought to live like. If we believe Jesus is better, there's nine ways for us to live. And so this morning is going to be very practical. I think it's going to be a little bit dry even. So stick with me. Open up a Bible. Make sure you're looking at it because we're just going to look at the different points. I don't have a ton of stories or illustrations or anything to really draw you into this text because this text is just very straightforward. Point one, point two, point three, point four. And it just tells us how you and I ought to live our lives if in fact Jesus is better than life. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's just pick it up. In, actually, let's look at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, the last two verses of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. We looked at this passage last week, but I want to pick it up here and move into chapter 13 this week with these last two verses. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's how the author of Hebrews kind of closes down this theologically rich text by saying that we now, if we understand all of this, if we believe all of this, if, if we accept this truth of Jesus Christ as true, we ought to now offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Acceptable worship doesn't mean that we gather together for an hour and a half and we sing the right songs in the right ways. It doesn't mean that we gather together for an hour and a half and sing the right songs in the right ways. Oftentimes in the American church, we think acceptable worship is a certain set of songs. It's a certain playlist or it's certain instrumentation to be used or it's a certain way that we handle ourselves within the building of the church. Acceptable worship is not that. Acceptable worship is a lifestyle. It's a transformation. It's a change of how we live our life. We worship God day in and day out with how we live. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, if you understand all of this theology, 
If you embrace Jesus as supreme and all-sufficient and better than all of the religious tradition, all of the religious effort, all of the Old Testament stuff, if you believe that, that ought to change the way that you live. Your daily life ought to be lived in a way where it's acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. You're in awe of who God is. You are respecting who God is and you are living your life in a way where it is pleasing. It's a pleasing testimony of worship to him. And then he goes into Hebrews chapter 13 and he gives us nine ways that we can live our lives as, as, though, accept, as though they are, un, they are acceptable worship unto God. This, the nine ways that we're going to look at, they're not exhaustive. There's plenty more ways in Scripture to live our lives as acceptable worship unto God. But the author of Hebrews gives us nine specific ones. So today I just want to look at these nine specific ways that we can live our lives as though it's acceptable worship to God, transformed by what we believe. What we believe, moving down into our heart, how we feel, and then out through our hands, how we actually live. So the first one is verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. I put it down as a bullet point as love the church. Because when the author of Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue, he's speaking specifically to love among the church family. The New Testament teaches us that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted, we are sons and daughters of God, and then we are put into a family, a local church assembly with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Love the church. I specifically put a lowercase c, although I wanted to put an uppercase c. An uppercase c would represent the universal church. The church across all cultures, across all denominations, anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I personally want to put there because I think we're called to love all Christians of all kinds, from all denominations, from all cultures. But the author of Hebrews, specifically, he's meaning the church that you are a part of. You need to be invested in and immersed in a local body, a local fellowship, a local family of Christ followers. Let brotherly love continue. When the scriptures uses that term brotherly love, it, it means this familial love, this, this love of people doing life together. And so as we gather this morning, as we scatter into community groups, as we do life together, we are called to love one another. Jesus told us in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, he tells his followers, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, by your love of one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We talk a lot about going out and reaching the world with Jesus Christ. We, we talk about being neighbors and witnesses and we want the lost to be found. We want the, the hurting and the broken outside of the walls of the church, outside of this family to be found. Yes, amen, that's true. Jesus gave us the great commandment to go and make disciples of all nations. But he says this is first and foremost done by our love for one another. We cannot make disciples of the nations if we don't love the people in our life. If you don't love your family, if you don't love your church, if you don't commit to a group of people and say, I'm in even when you annoy me. I'm in even though we don't see eye to eye. I'm in and I'm going to love you because this marker of love among the church family is how the world will know that we are followers of Christ. Tertullian, a church father who lived from 160 to 220, um, so he lived in the 2nd century into the 3rd century. He's from Carthage or North Africa. 
He was raised in a pagan family, and he became a Christian later in life, and here's what he testifies to what drew him to Christianity. This pagan who wanted nothing to do with Christ became a Christian, and here's what he says. He says, I looked at the church community, and I saw how Christians loved one another and how they were willing to die for one another. That's what drew him to Christ. It wasn't that he heard a great uh, um, sermon. It wasn't that a great evangelist went out and gave him all of this, this great defense of Scripture and, and, and made Scripture so clear to him that he understood it. It was that he was watching the church interact with one another. He said, these people love each other in a way that I, can't, I, I don't see anyone else on earth who loves the way that Christians love. And so Tertullian, a pagan, became a Christian because he said Christians love one another. They'll die for one another. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at here in the first century. Let brotherly love continue. Yes, we can believe that Jesus is better. We can talk about that. We can understand it with our head. We can study the scriptures. But if that doesn't translate into us actually loving one another, we're not living as though Jesus is better. We're just talking as though he's better. Number two, in verse two, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I think in context here, what he is referring to is Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham and Sarah showed hospitality to strangers who ended up being angels. And he had just referenced Abraham and Sarah in Hebrews chapter 11. So he's referencing that, but he's commanding the church, he's commanding Christ followers to show hospitality to strangers. To show hospitality to people who are different than us, to people who are strange in our mind, right? Think about strangers. We often think that people who are like us, that people who think like us, that that people who have the same values as us, they aren't strange because they're like us, right? And people who have different values, people who look different, people who think differently, they're the strange ones. Well, this is saying show hospitality to those who are different than you. Show hospitality to those who live differently than you. In the context of the first century church, people were traveling from town to town and there were inns for people to stay in, but oftentimes the inns were places of sin and there were places of um, just, they weren't places that you wanted to go to. There was sex trade, there was abuse, they were dirty, and even those that were good, they were often filled up with travelers. And so in the first century context here, this is saying, welcome in travelers who don't have a better place to go. Show them the love of Jesus. Open up your home. Pursue people who are different than you. When scripture refers to strangers, it's often talking about strangers, aliens, sojourners, foreigners. This is refugees. This is people who are displaced. People who don't have a place to go. People who are looking for safety. People who are looking for refuge. So church, the American Christian church, when it comes to refugee discussion, this isn't a political thing. I'm, I'm not touching politics one bit. This is a theological thing. The Christian church in America should be the first to say, we want to show hospitality to strangers. We want to show love and openness to those who are displaced. We want to be welcoming. And, and why? Well, if we understand from chapters 1 to chapter 12 that Jesus is better, what do we have to fear about a people group who we don't know? 
What do we have to fear about welcoming the stranger into our lives, into our communities, into our neighborhood, into our home? That's what Hebrews chapter 13 is telling us, that a mark of understanding who God is and what Jesus has done for us should translate into us being hospitable. Not just to those who are like us. Yes, to those who are like us. That's part of loving the church, right? Love your brothers, be in each other's lives, be in each other's homes. But also loving those who are unlike us. Loving those who are different than us. And we're unlike them and different than than them, right? What's to make us think that kind of our American Western standards are greater than theirs? We're, We're different than each other. Not better, not worse. And so church, our responsibility, our call biblically is to be hospitable to those that we're different than. Maybe we should just say it that way. Let's be hospitable to those that we are different than rather than saying those who are different than us. Right? Because that puts us kind of in the seat of superiority and them at the place of difference. What if we're hospitable to those that we're different than? Amen? All right, I like it. Thank you. Even if I had to ask for it. Number three, remember the mistreated and imprisoned. This is in verse three. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. And here in the context again of the first century church, he's talking about persecuted Christians, those who are put in jail for their faith. And look at, look at the brotherly love among this church. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Their burdens are our burdens. Their issues are our issues. Their problems are our problems. This is the type of relational connection that the church of Jesus Christ ought to have. And so, practically, in the first century, people were being imprisoned for their faith. He's speaking about the persecuted church, those mistreated and imprisoned for their faith specifically, not for just a crime against society. Though we should have a ministry to those who are in jail for a crime against society. We can't just count them out and discount them. But he's saying specifically, those of you who are in jail or mistreated because of your faith in Jesus Christ, remember them. Keep them in your prayers. Think how you can reach out to them. Serve them. This is hard for us to connect with here in America because praise God for our religious liberty and our our freedom to worship openly, right? I mean, look at what we're doing. The doors are open. Government officials could come and walk in and they couldn't do anything about what we're doing. But in other countries, that's not the case. People are imprisoned for doing what we're doing. In fact, Open Doors, a ministry that does research and outreach to the persecuted church around the world, they have some statistics. I want to share them with you. Every month, their, their research has showed that every month, 255 Christians are killed for their faith around the world. Every month, 104 Christians on average are abducted around the world. Every month, 180 Christian women are raped, abused, and forced into marriage around the world. Every month, 66 churches on average are attacked around the world. And every month, 160 Christians are imprisoned without fair trial around the world. Privileged white American church, primarily white American church, right? I mean, if we look around this room, we're primarily Caucasian. Praise, praise God for bringing some diversity to our church because God is a God of the nations. But what are we doing about this church? How are we praying for the church around the world? How are we caring about 
the church around the world. We're called here to remember those who are in prison. Though, as though we are in prison with them. Number four, honor marriage. And this moves right into verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. If we understand that Jesus is better, we understand that God is creator, that he sets the rules in order that helps society to function best. We are called to honor marriage. How do we do this? Well, by starting with understanding that marriage is designed by God and instituted by God. And so marriage reflects what God intended it to reflect. That's one man and one woman in a covenant marriage for life. A covenant commitment. One man, one woman, that's marriage. That's the history of the word marriage. That's the biblical teaching of the word marriage. That is how God, who designed and instituted marriage, set it up to be one man, one woman for life. So if we understand that Jesus is better, we submit ourselves to his leading, and this is how we honor marriage, by understanding what true marriage is, what biblical marriage is, and then working at that. And, and this doesn't mean throwing stones at the world for not understanding this, right? I mean, the world's going to do what the world is going to do. This is for God's people. This is for those in Christ. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And that doesn't mean all in society. That means all in the faith. This command is for us. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And then let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Sexually immoral, the word there is port. Por, por, Pornos, which we get the word porno from or pornography from. It means any sex outside of marriage or any sexual activity outside of marriage that's not between one man and one woman committed to each other for life. This is what he's getting at. Adultery means marital infidelity. He's saying this is how we keep the marriage bed undefiled is by keeping it between a covenanted man and woman together for life. And then he goes on to say, God will judge the sexually immoral, the, the, the pornos, pornography activity, that's what we look at, that's what we do, and adulterer. 65% of men in the church admit to looking at pornography on average at least once a month. And the number is rising among Christian women. How are we doing, church? That's over half the men in this room, and the number for women is getting closer to half. How are we doing at honoring marriage, keeping our marriage bed undefiled? Look at what it says at the end of verse 4. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, judgment can seem terrifying, right? And it is terrifying if we're not in Jesus Christ. So for the 65% of men in this room who would admit, that's 65% of men admit to looking at pornography at least once a month. So it's higher than that. So to the whatever percent of men who struggle with, with unhealthy sexual addiction or pornography or women as well, let's remember that if we're in Christ, there's forgiveness. When it says that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer, 
remember that God judges his people through the forgiveness and redemption of Christ. We looked at this last week, but to get it in context, let's go up to chapter 12, verse 23. This is in the context of chapter 12, he's saying that in Christ we've come to Mount Zion, the mountain of grace, not Mount Sinai, the mountain of judgment and terror. Okay, So that's the context of Hebrews chapter 12, and then look at verse 23. As we come to Mount Zion, the presence of the living God, we've come to an assembly of the firstborn, that's the church, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that if we are in Jesus Christ, if we've received him as Lord and Savior, if we, if we take communion and remember his blood which forgives us, even though we may be struggling with sexual immorality, our judgment is that of forgiven in Jesus Christ. Amen, church? To all of those of you, myself included, who struggle to obey God's commands, there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He looks at you and judges you as forgiven. If you're not in Jesus Christ, there's a different judgment. That's depart from me, for I never knew you, you sexually immoral adulterer. If you're in Jesus Christ, you can be struggling through the same activity with the blood of Jesus Christ applied to you, and he says, righteous, forgiven, pure, and holy. How great is our God, church. If this is you, find some people to talk to. Our church is a safe church. It's a safe place to share your struggles with. If you're struggling to honor marriage, if you're struggling to keep the marriage bed pure, or maybe you're unmarried yet and you're struggling with sexual purity, find somebody to talk to. Find somebody to confess that struggle to. It's a safe place. You're not going to be shamed. You're going to be loved and encouraged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number five, this one is, they're, they're also straightforward, aren't they? I mean, it's just, just read it and do it. Amen? Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How are you doing with that church? If we believe that Jesus is better than life, how are you doing with keeping your life free from the love of money? Do you love your Savior more than the gifts that your Savior provides? Do you love the gospel more than your net gain? Are you content with what God has provided you? This doesn't say don't make money. It doesn't say don't save money. It doesn't say don't use money wisely. It doesn't say don't have a job that makes you a ton of money. It says don't love money. Some of you have jobs that make you a ton of money. Praise God for that. How can you use it to bless others? Make sure, church, that you're, not, that you're not holding on to that money, that that money doesn't have, that that money isn't corroding your soul because you love it and you trust it. And look at what the author of Hebrews goes on to say. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. By the way, that's an incredible witness to the world. If we want to be neighbors and witnesses, if we want to be evangelists for Jesus, being content is a way to do that in this world because the world's not content. And, and Oftentimes in our flesh, we're not content. We want more. We grab for more. We, we, we want what we don't have. We want what others have. And so if we can keep our life free from the love of money and be content, it's an incredible witness to the world about the goodness of God. And here's what he says. He goes into the end of verse 5, into verse 6. He uses Psalm 118, verse 6, and he quotes it. 
Here's why, here's how we can keep our life free from the love of money and be content by understanding who God is. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's God's word to us. And then verse 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If we understand who God is and what he's done for us through Jesus Christ, God's for us. He's our helper. You have nothing to fear. There's nothing in life that can happen to you that money would get you out of better than God can sustain you through. Amen? There's nothing in life that can happen to you that money could get you out of that God can sustain you and will sustain you through. And so be content. Be content with what you have. Be content with where you are. And trust God is working his will out in your life. Listen to the words of Clement, the bishop of Rome from 88 to 99. Not 1988 to 1999, 88 to 99, first century. Clement, the bishop of Rome, he says, the Christians impoverish themselves out of love so that, they, so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need. The Christians impoverish them, themselves out of love so that they may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he can bear poverty better himself. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of giving out of his own poverty, he does not complain. Wow, that's the first century church. That's what the church looked like here. This, this book of Hebrews is written to the first century church, probably before 88 in, to 99, probably in the 50s or 60s, the book of Hebrews is written and spoken. And now, what is that public math here? 50 to 88, 38 years, right? Is that good public math? 38 years later, here's the testimony of the Christian church from Clement, the bishop of Rome. The Christian impoverishes themselves out of love so that they may never have to look at a brother who's in need. And he will take that need on himself if it means blessing his brother. Don't love money. Don't hoard money. Don't keep money. God's given you money, ask God, how do, how do I spend this? How do I use this? How do I not spend this? What do you want me to do with this? It's not wrong to have things and to have stuff, but we're always holding it with open hands, saying, God, this is yours. How do you want to use it? And then be content. Church, how are you doing with this one? How are you doing with not loving money and being content? Next one. We put three verses together to get this one point. Remember, obey, and pray for your leaders. Starting in verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, I think, first of all, what he's getting at here is leaders who have gone before us who have now passed away. I think he's referring to people like he listed already in Hebrews chapter 11 and other people in the church who may have been examples to them who have passed away. He's saying, remember them. Remember Dr. Nick and the way that he lived his life and imitate his faith. Remember Norris Nelson and the way that he lived his life and imitate his faith. Remember Louis Groot, who's still living but is in a home with dementia and consider the way that he lived his life and imitate his faith. Those of you who knew those people, you know what this verse means. Consider the way that they live their life and imitate it. 
Remember the people of Hebrews 11 that were listed and imitate their life. I think this specifically is speaking about Christian leaders who have gone before us and have passed away. But then if we flip over to verse 17 and 18, there's also a command here for us. If we believe Jesus is better, we submit ourselves to a church body and we submit ourselves to leaders in that church body. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then pray for us. The leader who's written this passage says, pray for us. So he's saying, remember the leaders who have gone before you. Remember remember the leaders who have gone before you. Imitate their life. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate it. Obey and submit to the leaders that God has placed over you here and now. Yes, I am one of those leaders. I don't like that passage. As I share this passage, I'm not thinking, yes, church members, you have to obey and submit to me. I'm fearful and trembling because look at what it goes on to say. For they are keeping watch over your soul as those who will have to give an account. I have to give an account to God for how I lead this church. I have to give an account to God for how I lead my family. But the command here is true for the church family, that we are to be in the midst of a local church assembly, a local church body, where we have leaders who we can submit to. That's New Testament biblical Christianity. American Christianity is, let's go to this church for a while because the music is great, let's go to this church for a while because the preaching is great, let's go to this church here, let's go to this church there. Someone hurt my feelings there, so I'm going to leave, I'm going to go over here. Now someone hurt my feelings there, so I'm going to go over here, and then someone's going to hurt my feelings there, so I'll go over here. That's kind of New Testament, that's not New Testament, that's American Christianity. New Testament Christianity is love the brothers, love the church, verse 1. Obey your leaders, and submit to them. That implies that you're actually at a church where there are leaders, does it not? This isn't saying that your favorite podcasting pastor who gives the best sermon submit to his leadership because he doesn't know who you are. I'm sorry, as you pop onto your podcast and listen to his great sermon, he has no idea who you are. This is saying be in the church community. And then pray for your leaders because they will give an account to God. Pray, verse 18, pray for us For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Church, could you pray for me? Could you pray for our pastors, our staff, and our elders that we could act honorably in all things and lead with a clean conscience? That's what this verse is telling us to do. That's what we are called to do as a church if we believe that Jesus is better. And then flip back to verse 8. Tied into this leadership thing, I love how the author slips in verse 8. So verse 7 is remember your leaders. Verse 17 and 18 is remember your leaders. Verse 8 is a sign and a reminder that Jesus is the best leader. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So church leaders are to point you to Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate leader. He is the good shepherd, as it actually says, flip over again. We're doing all this flipping. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the great leader. He's ultimately the one that we are to remember, obey, submit to. And he has established leaders in the church that we then also must do that to. But I love verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Church leaders change. Church leaders are fallible. Church leaders 
are fallible. Every church leader. Jesus is infallible. He's the only one who never changes. He's the only one who is unchanging. And so he's the one ultimately that we submit to and follow. And then the role of church leaders leads into verses 9 through 14, which is the next point. Do not be led astray by false teaching. Pick it up at verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Amen? It's good for the heart to be strengthened by the grace of God, not by the law of God, not by the Old Testament tradition, not by strange and diverse teachings or false teachings. In verses 9 through 14, the entire context here is telling us, it's reminding the readers of the Old Testament sacrificial system where the high priest would bring on the Day of Atonement a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, and then that sacrifice, after being made, would be brought outside of the camp and burned. And this passage, 9 through 14, is telling us that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, that Jesus is the better sacrifice, that Jesus went before us and he sacrificed himself. He shed his blood in our place on our behalf. And so don't go back to Old Testament worship, where you think that you can clean yourself up, where you think that you can bring a proper sacrifice, where you think that you can attend a church enough or you can attend a church in the right manner enough to get right with God. He's saying don't be led astray by false teaching in the church where people say you need to do your devotional this way, you need to attend church this way, you need to look like this when you go to church, you need to act like this when you go to church, you need to sing these songs when you go to church, you need to attend this kind of church with this particular theology, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this, you need to do that. He's saying no, that's false teaching. That's what leads people astray from the astray from the strength of God from being strengthened by God's grace. Verse 9, don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. That's what chapters 1 through 12 is about. It's trying to say, here's all the Old Testament teaching, here's false teaching. Don't fall back into the Old Testament worship. Cling to Jesus. For it's good that your heart is strengthened by grace, the undeserved favor of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Receive him. And that's what church leaders are put here for, is to help you not slip into false teaching, strange and diverse teaching, but to cling to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is the grace of God for us. And that strengthens us. You know what doesn't strengthen us, church, in our spiritual walk? A bunch of rules, a bunch of checklists, a bunch of to-do lists, a bunch of moralistic whatever it is. You've been there. You've had that done to you. You've been in Bible studies, you've been in churches where people are like, well, if you do this, 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 you'll be closer to God, you'll be a better Christian. That's not what strengthens the body of Christ. What strengthens the body of Christ? It tells us in verse 9. What is it? Grace. The undeserved favor of God in the person of Jesus Christ strengthens our spiritual walk. And so cling to him. That's proper theology. That's proper doctrine is to believe the grace of God in the purpose, in the person of Jesus Christ. Number eight, going to verse 15 here, at the end of 9 through 14, that's all part of the diverse and strange teaching. Verse 15, through him, Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So if we believe who Jesus is, we believe what he has done, we believe that he is God's ultimate sufficient sacrifice for us, he is better, that we need to be strengthened by his grace, then we continually praise God for making a provision, making a way for us through his son Jesus Christ, and then we acknowledge Jesus as the Savior. 
not our moral effort, not our religious duty, not our religious tradition, but Jesus. We praise God for making a way for us to come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. That is a mark of Christian living, that we continually offer up a sacrifice, not of Old Testament religion, not a sacrifice of a goat or a lamb or penance or giving offering or taking communion, all of the different things that we do as Christians, that's not a sacrifice of praise making us acceptable to the Lord. That's a response of the sacrifice that he made on our behalf in his son, Jesus Christ. And so instead, rather than continually offering up a sacrifice of duty or offering or whatever, we are to offer up a sacrifice of praise. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for what you've done for me on my behalf. Jesus, I acknowledge that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you. That's what it means to continually praise and acknowledge Jesus. It means that we don't take credit for our salvation. We don't take credit for our spiritual growth. We don't take credit for the good things that God is doing among our church. We continually offer praise to God the Father and say it's only because of the blood of Jesus the Son. And the last one is do good and share. I love it. So easy, so simple. Well, it's easy to say, not easy to do, right? Verse 16, if you believe that Jesus is better, you ought to live your life in this way. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do good and share. Christian sharing is a way to guard against the love of money. It's a way to practically care for the world. Isn't this what our world wants? I mean, our world is crying out for good people who share what they have. Christians, followers of Christ, we should be leading the way. When the world thinks about Christians, they shouldn't think, oh, people who are all political, people who want this, or they're against that, or they're against this. They should think, those people are really good and they share. They should know less about what we're against and more about what we do, that we do good and we share. Listen to Justin Martyr, who lived in the second century, what he says about Christians in the second century. Justin Martyr wrote, and he became a Christian later in life. Here's what he writes. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possession more than anything else, that was him, I, Justin Martyr, a man who became a Christian in the second century later in life, I who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possession more than anything else, now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who has need. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. But now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. The church is to do good and to share, to open up our arms, to open up our homes, to open up our lives, to say, whatever is mine is yours. If you need it, take it. That's what Jesus modeled for us. And so church, do you actually live like Jesus is better? We can talk about who Jesus is and what he's done in the theology of chapters 1 through 12. But when rubber meets the road, do you actually live like Jesus is better? Better than the religious tradition and effort that you're tied to? 
better than what the world has to offer, better than your very life. These are indicators of whether or not we are putting our faith into action. So church, assess yourself. How are you doing? Do you just believe Jesus is better up here? Can you, can you save Bible verses? Can you quote different scripture passages? Can you talk a big theological game? Can you judge the world for all their sin really well? I don't care. Can you do these things? Are you doing these things? This is what we're called to live our lives like. Now, let's keep in mind. We want to assess, because as we believe in Jesus and, and receive him as Lord and Savior, this becomes how we live, and it's increasingly, hopefully it's increasingly so, right? But let's keep in mind that the writer of Hebrews, he goes back to theology. So it's all about who Jesus is and what he's done, not about what we do, right? There's this weird kind of tension where for 12 chapters he's been saying, here's who Jesus is, here's who Jesus is, here's who Jesus is, believe this, receive this, submit your lives to this. And then chapter 13, he gets into this big long list of different things that we should do if we believe this. But then look at verse 20. He goes to a gospel benediction and he comes back to the gospel. It's not about whether or not you can do this list, church. Amen? Praise God. I can't do that list perfectly. I want to grow in that list. I want to get better at that list. I want all of us to grow in that and get better at that. But we cannot perfectly fulfill that list, those laws, demands. And so the author of Hebrews brings us back again to the gospel and he closes his book out with the gospel. Look at verse 20. After giving this big list of how we should live, he says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's not about you doing the list. It's about you believing that truth. It's about you receiving the Lord Jesus. It's about you submitting your life to him and, and being able to say that it's, through his, it's by his grace, it's through his power. He's equipping you, verse 21, with every good thing that you may do his will. God's heart and God's will is for us to live like this because he cares about the people of the world. And so he empowers us through his spirit to go out into the world and to be among the church family and to live this way that others would see the glory of Jesus Christ. He's equipping us with every good work which he is working out in us. So as we respond, that's what we respond to church, when we gather together at Park Community Church, we don't respond to a list of nine things that you need to start doing. Those nine things are indicators of where your heart's at, whether you're trusting Jesus, whether you actually believe he's better or not. But what we respond to is the truth of the gospel, that the grace of God has saved us. By raising again from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, the great shepherd of the sheep who covered us with his blood and equips us to do every good work. Amen? That's what we're going to respond to now to the blood shed of Jesus Christ for our sins, to the giving of his body for our eternal redemption. Let's pray, and then we'll respond by proclaiming the gospel through song, by proclaiming it through taking the communion elements. The cracker represents his body broken for us. The cup represents his blood shed for us. If you're in Christ, we welcome you to the table. Two stations up front, one in the back. Visit it as you feel led during this second set of music and allow the Lord to work in your heart.
God, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done. Jesus, we pray that you would have your way among us. May you make us a people who continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to you, God, by acknowledging the name of Jesus Christ. And now as we take communions, I pray that that would be a visible reminder for us to acknowledge Jesus the Christ, the one who lived the perfect life that we're incapable of living, the one who died the sacrificial death in our place and overcame sin and death in the grave. Nourish us now with the elements that remind us of Jesus. Amen.